Like a candle in the wind And the government covered all the facts That did you in And I know they're all just scumbags But we're gonna get to that Because it was a homicide And that's a matter of fact So, today we have the long-awaited Marilyn Monroe episode I thought I was going to have to do multiple parts, but I ended up being able to get it all into one episode, which is better because then you can stay interested and get all the information from start to finish. And I hope it's everything that you were looking forward to. I put a lot of effort into this. I hope you can feel the passion because I just really wanted to give her the spotlight that she never got on her death. She lived in the spotlight, but then her death was a complete humiliation to her, and they just ran her through the mud. So, we're gonna clear that up today. Let me know what you think of this episode. Of course, always leave five-star review. I love reading them. Makes my day. So, of course, leave a five-star review. If you want to hear my rant on the Netflix documented that they put out on Maryland, the Monroe tapes, you can go on Instagram and listen to my rant. And that's cosmic.peach.podcast on Instagram. So you can go check that out. I'm not going to rant on my episode. My episode is just for Maryland. So enjoy and let me know what you think. Thanks for listening. So this is me coming back several weeks after recording this episode. I listened to the entire thing. I'm very proud of it. A lot of passion went into this. But I just wanted to say everything that I talk about in this episode, I found from several different books that I read. A lot of stuff I found online, printed out the articles, and then I had like stacks of printed shit out from from online sources. And I had three books that I was flipping through as I was going through the episode. And then I realized that each book kind of displayed things in a different timeline. So I was trying to go from one book to another book to another book to my notes to I my desk looked like I was literally a CSI investigation, you know, officer. <laughs> like I had books all over my desk, notes all over my desk, and I was flipping through them throughout the episode to make sure I was going in a good timeline and I wasn't leaving anything out. So 
I also, like I always say in my anchor ad, I fuck up a lot. So I had to go in and fix some stuff and patch some stuff. So I am very proud of this episode. It is a masterpiece. I hope you enjoy it. And um, if you want to check out for yourself some of the stuff that I quote in this episode, I read books like Dead Wrong by Richard Belzer. And then I read Goddess, The Secret Lives of Marilyn, Anthony Summers. I read um, Norma Jean, Fred Lawrence Gills. I read Marilyn Monroe, Barb. I read a lot, okay? And then I found a lot of shit online. So if you want more information, you can just hit me up on Instagram. I'll give you the links and and to every book that I bought and all the shit that I found. So um, enjoy the episode. Hope it's everything, you know, that you are looking forward to. It was recently Marilyn Monroe's birthday, so happy birthday to Marilyn Monroe. Um, I've cleared your name from suicide. That's a great birthday gift. <laughs> but uh, this is kind of the outro to the intro before we start the episode. <laughs> so here we go. Let's do this. All right, here we are. The much-anticipated... Marilyn Monroe series. I recorded this whole thing one other time and I just was not satisfied with it. I felt like I was leaving shit out. So I'm back for round two of trying to record this because I just want to do it justice. So I have my notes in front of me Sit down, buckle up, because we are going to dive into it, and I'm going to get as much done in this episode as I can while keeping you interested and giving you all the little titty bits of information, and I'm going to do as much as I can before I have to make it a part two. So what we're going to start with today, I'm going to give you the information that I have found based on my notes, I'm going to be flipping through here and some testimonies and some quotes that I'll read you that prove her death was not a suicide. And I hope by the end of this episode, I will have convinced you that it was a homicide. So we have our victim, Marilyn Monroe, And her cause of death is supposedly acute barbiturate poisoning. Not supposedly. Her death was caused by acute barbiturate poisoning. It's just how the barbiturates were introduced into the body that it's not suicide. It's homicide. Although the reason she died was acute barbiturate poisoning. But the official verdict was suicide, and they say it was a self-administered overdose of sedative drugs. The medical examiner penciled in the word probable on his report because even he was not satisfied with the evidence to support that it was a suicide. For just a little bit of background, of course, Marilyn Monroe had an affair with President Kennedy but also with his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general. But what can I say? She likes to keep it in the family. And there is um, a story here that I read where after sex with 
President Kennedy, still laying in bed with him, she gave her masseuse a call and was like, hey, I have President Kennedy here with me and he's got some back problems. Do you know anything we can do to help him? And he supposedly gave <laughs> gave her some advice to give him for his back problems. So he came out and stated that after her death. And she also had a lot of psychiatric sessions that were recorded. And in those psychiatric ses sessions, um, the district attorney's office was granted permission to go back and listen to those recordings. And she speaks very specifically of her relationship with John F. Kennedy. And she speaks very specifically of her relationship with Robert Kennedy. And the relationships were also common knowledge in show business circles and even at the L.A. County Police Department as a confidential matter. And so Chief Tom Redden stated, quote, the Kennedy connection was a matter of common knowledge at the police department level I was at. The Kennedy, or should I say Kennedy's relationship with Marilyn Monroe was pretty generally accepted, end quote. And Marilyn considered these relationships to be completely serious and not at all frivolous, which to me is a little funny because if you're having sex with the president of the United States behind the first lady's back, of course, it is not going to be serious. It is 100% frivolous. And it's just one of those things where you got to know your role and play your position. Marilyn while she was gorgeous and, of course, she was a sex icon and everybody wanted to be with her, they didn't want to be with her in the public. Like, he wasn't going to leave Jackie Kennedy for Marilyn Monroe in, in the public eye. Like, I, I found that funny when I read that she thought that these relationships were very serious. But she reportedly had an affair also with of course, mob-linked Frank Sinatra and was good friends with Chicago Mafia boss Sam Giancana, Johnny Roselli, also Chicago Mob, and others amid what one writer has called, quote, an astonishing array of indiscretions. Okay. When you are Marilyn Monroe and everybody in the world wants you, I don't necessarily think it was an astonishing array of indiscretions. I think she was flirty and she was just a larger than life persona. And so her relationships kind of reflected that. But what set off alarm bells in U.S. intelligence was her friendship with Frederick Field and other known Soviet intelligence agents. And her phones were tapped and her home had listening devices with eavesdropping conducted by the government and independently by the mob. And her home was quote unquote sanitized, i.e. swept of bugs and sensitive materials in the hours after her death, accounting for the missing six hours before anyone finally called the police. And in my notes here, I have that... Her home was so full of listening devices, not only by our government, but also the mob, that she couldn't say a word without 
them knowing about it and listening to her. So I do find it odd that they waited six hours in between the time of her death and then calling the police. And then we later find out that they were removing the listening devices and the recordings have never been released. And they've quote unquote disappeared. So you can't find them. So a little bit of the inconsistencies that I'm going to cover as far as this couldn't be a suicide were there were no trace of tablets found in her stomach or intestines. Even though she had enough nimbutol and chloral hydrate in her bloodstream to kill a fucking elephant. Computer analysis that compiled all the pharmaceutical data concluded that to reach those levels, Marilyn would have had to swallow a total of 77 to 88 pills, 60 to 70 nimbutol, and 17 to 18 chloral hydrate. But digestion stops at death. Therefore, victims who swallowed pills always have undigested tablets and refractive crystals, which are the active ingredient in any drug, in their stomach. So there should have been substantial residue. And there are always refractive crystals in an oral overdose but none were found, even using a polarized microscope. So if it had been 77 to 88 tablets, there would have been a huge amount of refractive crystals in her stomach for this to have been death by tablets. So... She had a prescription, but they're saying she took that whole bottle and that's what killed her. And I'm going to prove to you that that is absolutely not the case. So, medical examiner Thomas Noguchi, here is a quote. I found absolutely no visual evidence of pills in the stomach or the small intestine. No residue, no refractal crystals. So, again, no refractal crystals means she could not have swallowed the pills, period. The coroner's report states, quote, A smear made from the gastric contents and examined under the polarized microscope shows no refractal crystals. And then we have Dr. Sidney S. Weinberg, who was the chief medical examiner of Suffolk County, New York, quote, it would have been impossible for her to have taken the barbiturates orally and not have some residue turn up in the stomach. The evidence points to all the classic features of a homicide, much more so than suicide, and certainly not an accidental death, end quote. So in addition to the huge amounts of chloral hydrate or quote-unquote knockout drops is what they have here, and nimbutol, which is a strong barbiturate, in her bloodstream, Marilyn also had 2.88 times that much nimbutol in her liver per the two toxicologists attached to the autopsy. And they say, we don't know how much chloral hydrate was in her liver because her organs literally disappeared before 
that could be tested. Dr. Noguchi requested the additional toxicology tests on her organs to establish with certainty how the drugs had been introduced, and he was told that the organs could not be located. That's enough drugs to kill a fucking elephant, yet none of the drugs were in her stomach. And Dr. Noguchi also stated that her stomach was almost completely empty and she had not eaten on her last day, nor had she consumed any alcohol. The fact that the stomach was virtually empty leads to the logical and necessary conclusion that Marilyn was given a drug-laced enema. I also have heard a lot of people say that all right, she didn't swallow the pills. She injected herself and gave herself a massive injection of the barbiturates. But I say her body was fully examined for needle marks or puncture wounds and injection of the drugs was eliminated as a possibility. John Minor, who was head of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Medical Legal Section, and attended Monroe's autopsy concluded that the vehicle of injury was an enema. Quote, Noguchi and I were convinced this was absolutely the route of admitting the fatal dose. End quote. The original medical examiner, the highly respected Thomas Noguchi, later called for a new official investigation, citing the strong possibility of murder. Dr. Noguchi, quote, she had a bruise on her back or near the hip that has never fully been explained. There is no explanation for it and it is a sign of violence, could be murder, end quote. And her body was found laying down. However, secondary lividity marks on her back and posterior of the arms and legs indicate that at some point during the first four hours after death when lividity occurs, her body was moved onto its back for a considerable period of time. Evidenced by strong secondary lividity marks and then placed back in the face down position before police arrived. And so what they say here is lividity doesn't lie. It is fixed four hours after death and does not change afterward. And that's what the markings clearly indicate. She also had cyanosis, which I was unfamiliar with until I began studying the case of Marilyn Monroe's death. And cyanosis is just turning blue. And it was present on Marilyn's body and is a medical indication that her death may have occurred very quickly. This correlates with the timeline in which people spoke to her on the phone near the time of her death and stated that she seemed normal, indicating that death may have been sudden, which is inconsistent with a typical sedative ingestion. And I found that very compelling because someone of Marilyn's friends talked to her on the phone 30 minutes before she died. And Marilyn was reportedly very happy and very conversational and completely normal. And then 
due to the rigor mortis that had set into her body, they estimated the time of her death 30 minutes after that phone call had taken place. So if she would have already ingested 88 Nimbutal sleeping pills and then she was about to die 30 minutes later, she would have been completely incoherent on the phone. There would have been no conversation. There would have been no phone call. And the first officer at the death scene, LAPD watch commander Jack Clemens, concluded that the death scene had been cleaned up and staged and that Monroe had actually been murdered. He said there was a major cover-up at LAPD and publicly disputed the official findings. Quote, it was the most obviously staged death scene I had ever seen. End quote. And forensic expert Dr. Sidney S. Weinberg, quote, People who have died as a result of excessive ingestion by mouth of barbiturates in their agonal stages as they're dying, they throw up. They have regurgitation and this regurgitated material comes out onto the pillowcases or whatever they're resting on, end quote. And there was no regurgitated material to be found anywhere near Marilyn's body. And there is a gap of over six hours between the time that she died and the time at which authorities were finally called. Combined with official observations, this gap is highly indicative of a cleanup. And when Sergeant Clemens arrived, he noticed that everything was too clean and that the maid had already started her third load of laundry at 4.45 in the morning. And although Marilyn was a dramatic person in a dramatic profession, there was no fucking suicide note. This is like a smoking gun to me because she was an avid journaler and kept record of every account of everything that had ever happened to her, but she didn't write a suicide note. Okay. And Marilyn was reported by witnesses to have been in, quote, good spirits, end quote, on both the day and evening of her death. Witnesses who spoke to her on the phone shortly before her death testified that she sounded normal and she had very specific plans for her future and was very excited about her future prospects. And just to add on to that, the tape recordings of her sessions with her psychiatrist prompted a member of the L.A. District Attorney's Office to conclude that there was no possible way this woman could have killed herself. She had very specific plans for her future, and she knew exactly what she wanted to do. And again, with the suicide note on how she kept record of everything, every encounter with JFK and his brother. She kept record of it all. She journaled everything. And the lock filing cabinet in which Marilyn kept her most important personal papers was forcibly broken into on the night that she died. What's also very funny to me is that a White House phone number was reportedly found scribbled on a small piece of paper in her bed. 
and that note later disappeared. So we shall never know whose phone number that was. Uh, how about the direct line for President Kennedy's office? <laughs> but the laboratory tests that Dr. Noguchi originally requested on Maryland's organs were never done. And when he re-requested they be done, he was told that the laboratory specimens, which are her organs, had disappeared. And a deputy district attorney stated, quote, In the entire history of the L.A. County Coroner's Office, there had never been a previous instance of organ samples vanishing, end quote. Well, no shit. <laughs> Give me a break. And an attendant stated, quote, Knowing Coroner Cuffrey, who was Noguchi's superior at the time, and that he supervised the autopsy, it seemed difficult to imagine that those specimens just disappeared. It wouldn't have happened, end quote. Well, no shit again, especially as someone as high profile as Marilyn Monroe, you would have thought they transported those motherfuckers personally to the lab. The original autopsy report is reportedly missing. Original police report is also missing. And Donald Wolf writes, quote, so whatever happened to the obviously very important police file on Marilyn Monroe, might, one might ask, end quote. I'm wondering the same thing, but not really, because I kind of know why it's they're missing. But Lieutenant Marin Phillips told us, quote, in 1962, Chief Parker took the file to show someone in Washington, and that was the last we heard of it, end quote. Well, Lieutenant Myron Phillips, that sounds pretty fucking suspicious. Her official medical reports have reportedly also disappeared, and telephone records of Marilyn's calls in the days preceding her death were apparently seized by the FBI, and then they disappeared. <laughs> Look at that. And then wiretaps and tapes of professional eavesdropping conducted by the U.S. Justice Department and independently, also by organized crime, at Maryland's home and at Peter Lawford's Santa Monica Beach House have been known to be recorded, but they also have disappeared. <laughs> I mean, it just reeks of a staged death. I feel like Marilyn was the OG suicided victim. And a little bit about the death scene now. Sergeant Jack Clemens, you'll hear this name a few times, was on duty as watch commander at the West Los Angeles Division Headquarters of the Los Angeles police department when he received a phone call from Marilyn Monroe's doctor stating that she was dead. He noted the time in his logbook at 4.25 a.m. on Saturday night, which technically that would be Sunday morning, but 
he told the doctor that he'd come check it out. So en route to Marilyn's home, he radioed for backup and then he pulled into the driveway of Marilyn Monroe's Brentwood home. He noticed there were several other cars parked in the driveway as he pulled up and he was the first officer on the scene. So I'm literally just reading a little bit about what he said he saw when he got to the house that night. And there are a lot of scumbags in Marilyn's death story, but this guy is not one of them. So I really like to read it from his perspective. He said he knocked on the door and waited, hearing footsteps and whispering inside the house which lasted for several minutes before finally seeing the porch light turn on. The housekeeper finally opened the door and he entered the home. The housekeeper led him to Marilyn's bedroom where she lay dead upon the bed. A sheet was pulled up over her body, leaving only her head exposed. Marilyn's physician, Dr. Inglefucker, Dr. Fuckberg, Ingleberg was seated in a chair next to the bed. And Dr. Ralph Greenson, who is another fuckerty fuck, Marilyn psychiatrist, was also in the room standing near the bed. And the doctors blurted out that Marilyn had committed suicide and gesturing to an empty bottle of Nimbutol on the nightstand, said that, she had taken all of those. And Sergeant Clemens pulled down the sheet as the two doctors watched. The first thing that struck him as odd was the fact that the body was obviously bruised. Which is very, very interesting to me because he is, he has been silenced a million times because he is the only one that has ever publicly disputed the findings of Marilyn's death. And the fact that the bruising was so obvious that it was the first thing he noticed when he pulled that sheet down. I have my own theory about what they did to her before and after her death, but I will get into that a little later. I'm just setting up with with my notes here, I'm just setting up for you Sergeant Clemens' account of what happened that night. So, he also noted that a telephone cord ran over one side of the bed and was underneath her. He then noticed that the body was perfectly straight in what is known as uh, the soldier's position. Face down, arms at the sides, legs straight. And he knew from experience that it this is not a position that overdose victims die in. They end up in a contorted position due to the involuntary spasms caused by the overdose. It's also usually very messy because OD victims typically vomit in the throes of death as their body attempts to reject the semi-digested drugs. 
So just as I said before, one of the inconsistencies is that there was no sign of this involuntary spasm caused by overdose of tablets. It was very, very clean in there. And Marilyn was not in a contorted position. She was actually in a completely unnatural position, stick straight on her bed and with her face down. Sergeant Clemens immediately asked the doctors if the body had been moved. They answered it had not. He then asked them if they had tried to revive her, and Dr. Greenfuck stated flatly that they had not, that it was too late. But Sergeant Clemens considered their attitudes out of context with the situation, and they were defensive and uncharacteristic uncharacteristically for doctors. Sorry, I butchered that word, but just reading from his testimony, uncharacteristically for doctors. Wouldn't volunteer any further information, and Clemens found their attitudes to be totally off, especially Dr. Greenfuck. And here is a quote from Sergeant Clemens, quote, he was cocky, almost challenging me to accuse him of something. I kept thinking to myself, what the hell is wrong with this fella? Because it just didn't fit the situation, end quote. As we go on in this description by Sergeant Clemens, you will see that Dr. Greenfuck and Dr. Inglefucker are definitely in on it together and they had completely re rehearsed their stories before the sergeant got there. So Sergeant Clemens said he wanted to speak to the housekeeper and while he was walking over to the laundry room, he found Eunice Murray there folding clothes with the dryer running. He immediately thought it was quite odd that she would be doing laundry at that hour of the night, especially almost at 5 a.m. while her employer lay dead in the next room. He also noted that the housekeeper had a very agitated and nervous demeanor, just as she had had when she finally answered the front door for him. Now, Marilyn's closed circle was full of fakes and phonies and trained monkeys who knew how to regurgitate a story or a script or hide things, cover things up because they were all fakes and phonies. But the housekeeper wasn't. And Sergeant Clemens noticed that she was fucking nervous the entire time he was questioning her. And the fact that Marilyn was dead in the next room, I highly doubt that she would have given a fuck how white the sheets were. Why was she doing laundry? It just doesn't make any type of sense whatsoever to start laundry when you just found out the biggest movie star in Hollywood, who is also your employer, is dead in the next room and you have a police chief in your face asking you what the fuck happened and you're worried about folding towels. It just doesn't make any type of sense. So as the housekeeper nervously folded clothes, Sergeant Clemens asked her at what point had she known that something was wrong. And Mrs. Murrayfuck answered that it was about midnight 
that she had woken up to go to the bathroom and noticed that the light was still on in Marilyn's room. As she could see the light under the door, she said that she knocked on it, but Marilyn didn't answer. So she tried to open the door, but it was locked from the inside. And at that point, she called Dr. Greenfuck, her psychiatrist, who arrived at about 1230. And she stated that when Dr. Greenfuck arrived, again, trying Marilyn's door and getting no response, the doctor went outside and looked through the bedroom window and could see Marilyn lying motionless on the bed. So he broke the window and then came through, unlocked the door, and told her, We've lost her! How fucking theatrical is that? And the fact that he jumped straight to death because the position that Marilyn's body was in would have looked like someone just passed out asleep. There was no sign of Marilyn. Like if I looked through her window and she was laying in that position, I'd be like, oh, she's dead. But so he breaks the window and without even trying to revive her, he goes straight, unlocks the door for the housekeeper, and he's already decided that Marilyn is dead. Sergeant Clemens found it very troubling that the body had been discovered supposedly at 12.30 a.m., but no one had called the police until 4.25 a.m. Four hours is a very fucking long time to wait. But the precise manner in which the housekeeper stated the events to Sergeant Clemens made him even more suspicious because it sounded too rehearsed. And he asked the housekeeper what she had been doing all night. And she answered him that she realized that there'd be a lot to do and that a lot of people would be coming over. So she called someone to repair the broken window. All right, what else? She said that she then collected all of her personal belongings from Marilyn's home and gathered them in a bucket. And it just sounded extremely insufficient to Sergeant Clemens. And first off, again, you just found out Marilyn Monfuckin-Roe is dead lying there deceased though and you are worried about the broken window because a lot of people are on their way over so her story of why it took them four hours to call the police is because she said that she had to call a window repairman and then she had to gather up all of her stuff and then she had to start laundry a toddler could figure this shit out i mean that's ridiculous so, Sergeant Clemens then returns to the doctors and asks them the same question. And they responded that they hadn't called the police immediately because they had to call Marilyn's studio and get permission. And Sergeant Clemens was like, permission? Like, what are you talking about? And they said that basically that's how it is in the movie business. And they had to clear everything with her publicist. And he was like, well, what did you do during those four hours, though? Because even if you call a publicist and you have to get permission to release this to anyone, 
that phone call is not going to take four hours. But we later find out that four hours isn't even accurate because of the rigor mortis that had set in actually would have placed the gap between her death and the time they called the police six hours, which is even more astonishing. And so when he asked them, like, what what were you doing, like, during all those hours? They said that, oh, we were just talking. And they were like, well, what were you talking about for four fucking hours? And the doctors didn't have an answer for that one. And they responded that, um, you know, they just kind of shuffled their feet around and shrugged their shoulders and were like, <laughs> but so doc, um, Sorry, Sergeant Clemens knew that the doctors were protected by professional confidentiality and didn't legally have to answer any of his questions. He also knew that their attitudes were absolutely bizarre for the situation and that things simply were not adding up. And he pointed out to the two doctors that although... There was an empty bottle of pills. There was no drinking glass of any kind that she could have used to help her swallow all the pills. Stumped by that very cognate observation, the doctors then helped Sergeant Clemens look around for a drinking glass. And none was ever found. However, get this shit. They did find that the water in Marilyn's bathroom was completely shut off, making it even more fucked that she would have been able to swallow the bottle of pills with no water whatsoever. Now let's take into consideration the fact that they found the amount in her bloodstream of 88 tablets. So we're now talking about that Marilyn would have had to swallow 88 tablets with no water. Give me a fucking break. So it clearly isn't adding up for Sergeant Clemens and he asked the doctors if Marilyn was in the habit of injecting drugs with a syringe. And they answered that she always took her drugs orally. And Clemens backed up and asked them again, how was the body discovered? And Dr. Greenfuck related the same story about being called by the housekeeper and then breaking the bedroom window to find Marilyn dead in bed. He added that her hand was firmly gripping the telephone when he reached her and that he took the phone out of her hand and he said that Marilyn must have been trying to call for help. And, I mean, if I was Sergeant Clemens, I would just be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like this dog and pony show. How dramatic is that? Why would Marilyn be calling someone on the phone when she had her own fucking housekeeper right down the hall just a few feet away from her. It doesn't make sense. And Sergeant Clemens 
completed taking statements from the witnesses and concluded that he had not been told the truth. Why wasn't there even a glass of water next to the neatly lined up pill bottles when the LAPD first arrived? And how come one was placed near them later on? The officers confirmed that it was definitely not there when they first arrived. But there goes a glass right in time for the other police officers to show up. Holy fucking shit. There it goes right there. Wasn't there an hour ago, but here goes a glass just in time for the pictures. Now we know, as I had said before about the rigor mortis, that she actually died prior to the time police were told, at least six hours before the phone call was made to police. When Marilyn's corpse was picked up, Again, the level of rigor mortis in the body was observed by experts and then estimated the time of death at 9.30 to 11.30 p.m. So they waited over six hours to call the police. What was taking place during those six hours and why? We also know that the washing machine was running when the police arrived at shortly after 4.30 a.m. And it's rather odd to be doing laundry at that time of the morning. Too many irregularities and too much is out of place. So, along with the questionable responses by both of the doctors and Mrs. Murray... There were many other signs that showed the death of Marilyn Monroe had to have been a staged suicide. An often overlooked fact is that the window of Marilyn's bedroom did not have any anti-burglar bars on it and was forcibly broken. A basic fact of crime scene investigation is that a broken window is always classified as inconsistent with suicide because a broken window, especially in the room where the victim is found, is a clear and precise indication of a forced entry, which is why I think that the broken window became part of the cover story because while they were sitting around for six hours, they realized they, they would have to incorporate the broken window into why they had to do it to save her life. But I think they showed up to kill her and she wouldn't let him in the house. And one of the fucks either broke the window and came in on her or... They found some shards of glass actually on the outside of the house, which is inconsistent with someone breaking through the window to get in because the glass would be on the inside of the house. So maybe they broke the window while they were in there with her to make it look like, oh, well, we had to break the window and get in to try to save her life, like, like dramatic almost. So, Dr. Greenson told the police that the door to Marilyn's bedroom was locked, 
We now know that it is not true because the housekeeper finally admitted that Marilyn almost never locked her bedroom door and that indeed she had not locked it on her final night. Even so, by saying it was locked, it made it feasible for Dr. Greenfuck to have broken the window in order to get in and try to help Marilyn. And then we also know that the locked filing cabinet in which Marilyn kept her most important personal papers, which was located in her guest cottage, was also forcibly broken into on the night that she died. So going back to when Sergeant Clemens pulled the sheet down and he noticed her body was obviously bruised. She had many fresh bruises that were noted on her body, especially a very large bruise on the lower left side of her back. The medical examiner later stated that the large bruise was clearly a sign of violence and that should have been investigated as such. Also noted were bruises on her arms and on the backs of both of her legs. Autopsy report reads, the colon shows marked congestion and purplish discoloration, which led the head of the medical legal section at the district attorney's office considering it the smoking gun of homicide. Damn, how do I explain the colon? I have a lot of thoughts on the colon that I want to cover. But before I get onto that, we, we need to address the fact that she did. So Marilyn did not even have access to the drugs that eventually ended up killing her. Because she was being successfully weaned off of Nimbutal by her two doctors who were working together, those fucks. Um, but they were gradually reducing both her reliance upon and her access to Nimbutal. So she was taking much less of a dosage. The prescriptions filled during the last five weeks of Marilyn's life are almost completely accounted for. The only Nimbutal that Marilyn even had possible access to was a prescription on August 3rd, 1962 for 25 capsules. Yet the autopsy revealed a massive overdose many times more than the amount which she had access. So, again, with 88 pills, she didn't even have access because they were trying to wean her little ass off of them completely. So even if she took her full prescription, it would have only been 25 capsules. And she was highly resistant to Nimbutal, which 25 capsules for you and I who have never taken it would kill us and taking one or two would definitely knock us on our ass. But Marilyn was so used to it, she could probably take five or six capsules and barely feel it. So the fact that they had only given her 25 as a way of weaning her off was actually not that much. So even if she would have taken 25 capsules, they would have found her before she died. But 
she definitely had a massive overload of drugs in her system that is completely inconsistent with the amount that she was prescribed. Her clear lack of access is further evidenced by the fact that on her final day, her psychiatrist, after a two-hour Saturday afternoon session at Marilyn's home, called Marilyn's doctor to ask if he could come over and give her something to help her sleep because she had a tough day. Later on, we find out that she had a tough day because Robert Kennedy showed up at her house and was screaming and fighting with her. And her housekeeper said, Marilyn definitely wasn't expecting him because she didn't have her hair done or her makeup on and she wasn't even dressed yet. And Marilyn was never seen without her hair done or her makeup on or being lavishly dressed, especially when she was going to have male company coming over. So she was probably like, fresh out of the shower, just woke up in the morning and Robert Kennedy shows up to Marilyn's house and he's screaming at her and he's yelling at her and they fight. And several witnesses even corroborated seeing Robert Kennedy there that day. But even after the doctor leaves her house and she says, I'm feeling better, but I just want to take a nap. Her doctor's not able to give her anything to help her sleep. And she's looking for her Nimbutal prescription. She can't even find it. And then calls her doctor and goes, hey, um, I just want to let you know I'm feeling a lot better. But um, did you take my Nimbutal prescription? Because ever since you came over, I can't even find it now. And he stated that he was um, relieved because she wouldn't have access to any Nimbutal and didn't want her to abuse it. So he was like, no, I didn't take it, but I'm kind of happy you don't have it because now I don't have to be worried about you taking too much. And she was like, oh, okay, well, I was just checking to make sure. Um, so she couldn't even find her prescription. And then it's later confirmed via the testimony from a friend who stated that Marilyn called her between 9 and 9.30 and told her she was having trouble getting to sleep and asked if she had any sleeping pills that she might be able to bring over to Marilyn. And the friend was unable to comply and minutes later, Marilyn was dead. So if she knew where the prescription was and was ready to take all of them, why would she call her friend at nine o'clock at night and say, hey girl, I'm having some trouble getting to sleep tonight. I can't find my Nimbutal prescription. Do you happen to have any sleeping pills you could come bring me? And her friend's like, nah girl, I'm not on that shit. Sorry. And Marilyn's like, oh, it's okay. We'll talk to you later. All right. I'm just going to lay here and go to bed. Bye. And then 30 minutes later, she's dead. So there's two things here. One, she didn't know where her prescription was. She had to call her friend to bump some off of her. Two, if she had taken the entire prescription, she wouldn't have asked for some. Three, if she had taken her whole prescription, she wouldn't be able to talk because she would be freaking incoherent having taken 88 pills and she would be um, regurgitating and dying and, and you know, wouldn't be having a chatty chat with her friend. Lot to unpack there. But 
The only way that the massive amount of drugs could have entered Marilyn's body was anally. Forensic experts ruled out all other possibilities. Combined with her bruises, and especially her bruised colon, this is a clear indicator of possible murder. The chief of the medical legal division for the DA later stated, quote, that autopsy that Dr. Noguchi and I saw a considerable area of the sigmoid colon, which is the lower portion of the large intestine, was congested and dark purplish in color. This is totally anomalous. I've never seen another autopsy of barbiturate death with this phenomenon, end quote. But on top of that, there are indications due to the cyanosis of a rapid death. And rapid death is a sign of possible murder because it is inconsistent with a typical overdose. In a typical drug suicide, the victim succumbs slowly and usually vomits and experiences muscle contortions as their body attempts to expel the toxic substance. Just reading the notes here from the uh, medical examiner. There were no signs of these typical reflex actions at Marilyn's death scene. Instead, the body lay perfectly straight with no mess from vomiting or gagging. And it was a known fact among her friends that Marilyn had difficulty swallowing pills and often gagged when taking only one. To propose that she swallowed scores of capsules without gagging or vomiting is completely preposterous. Poor Marilyn couldn't even take one little old pill without gagging, but we've got her down for death by 88 tablets with no water or drinking glass next to her bed. It's one of those things where you literally have to say they get away with murder and then do a phenomenal job brainwashing everyone into thinking that's exactly what happened. And to further humiliate her by stripping her down naked, taking pictures of her, her hair wasn't done, her makeup wasn't on, they stripped her nude, and then they posted in the fucking newspaper, Marilyn found in the nude, dead by overdose. And it's just a further humiliation of Marilyn. And it wasn't bad enough that they could just go in there and kill her. They had to embarrass the shit out of her even after her death. And that makes me sick to my fucking stomach. So, the victim also displayed cyanosis, bluish discoloration of the extremities, and still had stool in her colon. Cyanosis is the deep blue purplish discoloration to the skin, gums, fingers, or mucous membranes that occurs from a sudden and overall lack of oxygen in the blood. An overall lack of oxygen is usually the result of a trauma, such as strangulation, choking, suffixation, or drowning. 
a heart attack or blood clot can cause cyanosis because they also quickly cut off the oxygen supply. When present in a drug overdose, cyanosis can be an indication of a massive amount of drugs introduced rapidly into the victim's body. For example, a heroin addict who ODs by injecting an inordinately strong dose of heroin would be likely to have cyanosis. In Marilyn's case, we know that she did not suffer from the most common medical issues of cyanosis. She did not suffer from a heart attack, severe blood clot, cyanide poisoning, severe lung disease, pulmonary embolism, or cyanotic heart disease. Nor did she suffer a trauma that cut off her breathing. The autopsy would have revealed that. So, her cyanosis was quite possibly caused by a massive amount of drugs entering her system in a rapid manner. The fact that she still had stool in her colon is another indication of rapid death. She had been conscious when a deadly amount of drugs entered her anally. The logical reaction is to intentionally evacuate the bowel in order to expel the lethal enema content. The significance of the rapidity of death did not go unnoticed by the medical examiner. As Dr. Noguchi later stated, quote, no one has been able to explain why Marilyn was laughing happily on the phone and then dying only 30 minutes later. Marilyn died so fast in the blink of an eye that she still had stool in her colon. And the colon was bruised with that purplish color and was congested. So they gave her a bulb type enema. One thing is definitely for sure as well. Lividity never lies. Lividity is the bluish markings that result from the settling of blood after death and is fixed within four hours post-mortem. That means that during the period of the first four hours following death and only during that period, any movement of the body creates marks that will not go away. The lividity marks tell a very precise story of exactly how the body was moved during those four hours. And since Marilyn's body was not officially moved prior to 6 a.m., we therefore can be sure that no lividity markings were the result of transporting her body. So basically the lividity marks, as some argue, were not caused by her transportation from her home to the morgue or wherever they took her. They were caused within the first four hours after death and since by the time they got there it had already been six hours after death, no markings were caused by her transportation. Marilyn had primary lividity very pronounced markings on the front of her head, neck, and upper chest. She also had secondary lividity on her back. Tertiary lividity also appears on the front side of her body. Therefore, there is clear evidence that she was actually moved twice. 
We know from the evidence that Marilyn died with her head down. In fact, the lividity is so pronounced that it indicates that she died with her head down and even hanging off the edge of the bed. The body was then moved twice. The lividity markings define precisely how and when the body was moved. At a point between approximately 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., Marilyn's body was turned from its original face-down death position and was placed flat on her back. Her body remained in that position not just for a couple of minutes or time for a quick cleanup, but for a substantial period of time. Her body was then turned back to its original death position of face down upon her bed as it was positioned at the time that the police arrived. And that's nobody's fucking theory. It's hard forensic science from clear forensic facts. And then Sergeant Clemens later stated, as I said before, it was the most obviously staged death scene he had ever seen. A grand jury foreman actually in 1985 stated his goal of reopening the case of Marilyn's death and requested the appointment of a special prosecutor. And as he was holding the press conference to detail that, it was announced by Superior Court Judge that he was replacing him with a new grand jury foreman. So he literally lost his job because he tried to reopen the case of Marilyn's death. And I have seen, as a child, TV shows like Unsolved History, who start out with the intentional suicide, and they claim that the disorderliness of Marilyn's bedroom and the lack of personal items in her room were a sign of a severely depressed person and that she uh, was definitely planning on committing suicide, but they don't take into consideration that she was actually remodeling her entire house and she left her room for last, which is why it looked like it did. And which is why the water was turned off in her bathroom because her house was being remodeled. And they also distort the truth by saying it couldn't have possibly been an enema because the bag and hose type enema is really messy and hard to deal with. And it's dysfunctional. But they they act like they don't realize that there is a syringe bulb type enema with like a short nozzle. It literally looks like a big huge syringe with like a bulb on it, and you would just squeeze it, and that's it. That there is there they would never have used a bag and hose type enema. That just doesn't make sense at all. It would be clearly obvious that they would have used the bulb type of enema, but. They want to distort the truth to make it look like it was an intentional suicide, which is why I tell you with love, if you watch the Marilyn Monroe whatever fuck documentary is on Netflix, please listen to me. They distort the truth and they do it so well that by the time you get done watching it, you disregard plain, simple scientific facts and they 
twist your brain around into thinking that something like that was possible because they tell half truths and they never get people like Sergeant Clemens or Thomas Noguchi or read you any of their statements or findings or give you the information that they had lost her organs so they couldn't be tested. Um, her organ samples were missing. They, they don't put any of that. The most important factor of how this is easily a homicide in, in all the facts surrounding her death, they throw out the fucking window so they can give you some BS story about, look at this Netflix documentary on Marilyn Monroe. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, definitely. I can see how she would that that that. But what I'm trying to give you here is the hard truth. And besides even the broken window, the forced entry, her filing cabinets being broken into, the severe fresh bruising, which was a sign of struggle on the backs of her arms and the backs of her legs and her hip, she was also involved with Sam Giancana, Dawn of the Chicago Mob, Johnny Roselli, who was Chicago's top man in Hollywood, and the Mafia was working with the Kennedys. And so while they played a huge part in her career, they also would have not given two shits about killing her to protect the names of the Kennedys and silence her forever. So it would have been easy for them to have went in there and given her an enema and shutted her up. So another thing that I want to touch on here, besides the no needle marks and the fresh bruising and the fact that it was a massive overdose, is that Nimbutal is a drug that is coated in a very thick, yellow dye and it was not present in Marilyn's stomach. No tablets were found in her stomach, no food was found in her stomach, no alcohol was found in her stomach, and no yellow dye was found in her stomach. And some people say that that's because they pumped her stomach to try to save her, but it has been recorded that there was no stomach pump that was used. So whatever was in her stomach was what was in her stomach. And a lot of people say that um, she was very curvy and body positive for the time and very blah, blah, blah. Woman was a size eight and I have been a size eight. I'm not far from it now, but um, I was very thin. I was like 110, 115 pounds when I wore a size eight. Uh, that's not body positive or curvy. People thought I was sick when I was a size eight and they told me I needed to eat a sandwich. I also saw pictures of Marilyn's back in the dress that Kim Kardashian wore to the Met Gala. And you could see all the bumps of her spine sticking out through her skin. So this notion that she was just this body positive, uh, I love myself, I'll eat whenever, I highly doubt it because the women in her time probably wore two and she was an eight, which is a huge difference. But bitch was real thin. So the, the curvy, vivacious thing, I don't 
really understand, but she was beautiful. Even at my thinnest, you really couldn't see my spine through my skin. So um, I've always had a level of fat rolls that were pretty healthy. Just, you know, saying even when I was a size eight, you know, that that was really thin for me. And I'm still thin, but not like that. Getting, I'm digressing, but I'm getting back on the subject. So Dr. Noguchi stated that they found absolutely no visual evidence of pills in the stomach or the small intestine. Yet the toxicology examination that was conducted by Dr. R.J. Abernathy provided conclusively that Marilyn died from a massive overdose of the drugs pentobarbital and chloral hydrate, both of which were found in huge amounts in her bloodstream. Chloral hydrate is often referred to as knockout drops or the date rape drug, and we see it all the time in movies when somebody holds a cloth over someone's face, um, or they put it in like somebody's drink and they pass out like in the hangover, but its use was apparently common by the mafia, especially circa early 1960s. And the hypnotic drug had been used the previous year in a number of brutal underworld killings and was the mafia's pharmaceutical murder weapon of choice. The forensic, contradic the forensic contradictions led Noguchi back to the toxicology report, which was limited in nature and did not contain results of testing the kidneys, stomach, urine, and intestines for which Noguchi had sent specific samples because they would reveal how the barbiturates had entered Marilyn's body. Noguchi's request for the test results of these samples was met with a response that was very hard for a medical examiner to hear. There were no results, and furthermore, all the samples had disappeared. Deputy District Attorney John Minor was as shocked at the disappearance as Noguchi was, and again stated, in the entire history of the L.A. County Coroner's Office, there had never been a previous instance of organ samples vanishing. The forensic medicine establishes that there is no case on record of a fatal dose by oral ingestion involving such high concentration in the blood of both pentobarbital and chloral hydrate. The victim inevitably dies before the fatal concentration can approach such a high blood level. Monroe would have been dead before even reaching 35% of the total barbiturates that had been found in her blood. It is not possible that the remaining 65% to be absorbed by the digestive tract vanished without a trace, because when the heart stops beating, the blood stops circulating, and the bodily functions shut down. So she would have been dead before the level of pentobarbital and chloral hydrate in her bloodstream even got 35% of what it was. 
yet we see this massive overdose that's supposedly caused by 25 capsules that she was extremely resilient to. Another stupid-ass theory is that Marilyn's housekeeper was given a bag of liquid Nimbutol to give to Marilyn in an enema when she needed help sleeping, and that either one the housekeeper purposely gave her the full bag of liquid Nimbutol to kill her. Or two, she was so retarded she couldn't read the instructions and accidentally gave Marilyn a full bag of liquid Nimbutol. Here's the facts. A full bag of liquid Nimbutol is 50 cc's, which is the equivalent to 25 1.5 gram tablets. So again, a full bag of liquid Nimbutol, 50 cc's, is the equivalent to 25 1.5 gram tablets, which she had already been prescribed. So even if she would have been given a full enema bag of liquid Nimbutol, it would not have been enough to kill her. So it's not really the cause of Marilyn's death that I'm you know, getting at here. It's the vehicle of entry, okay? The vehicle of delivery of the drugs that makes it a homicide and is cause for suspicion. Because we know that her bloodstream contained a huge amount of both of the tranquilizers, Nimbutol and Chlorohydrate, enough to kill 15 people. But we know as a clear result of the autopsy, she had not ingested anything into her stomach. So, her stomach and digestive tract were thoroughly examined and revealed an extremely curious finding. There were no traces of drugs in the stomach. And Nimbutol, like I said, contains a strong yellow dye that usually leaves yellow traces in the digestive tract yet there was none of the dye found in her stomach no needle marks none of that bs and you know i came across this quote a while back when i was researching something else but it's corny but it fits and sherlock holmes famously said once you eliminate the impossible whatever remains no matter how improbable must be the truth so we can gather based on the autopsy and the scientific evidence that Marilyn was given a drug-laced enema in a syringe bulb so I also believe that the fresh bruises left on the backs of her legs and the backs of her arm and the huge bruise on her left butt cheek was from them holding her down so they could administer the enema. They had to literally lean in on her, which is the cause of that gigantic big old purple bruise on her butt cheek. Somebody would probably elbowed into her butt cheek and the other ones just kind of held down her legs and arms while they administered the enema. And the, again, the significance of the rapidity of death is that if she would have been able to, she probably would have tried to push out the contents of the enema, but it was so lethal that before she had a chance to try to expel 
the enema content from her butthole, she died. So that is very significant. And we have the deputy DA saying, quote, I do not know who killed her, but I do know that she didn't kill herself. So someone must have killed her, end quote. And just to top this whole thing off, would she really make an appointment to get her hair done and confirm it for the next morning if she knew she was going to commit suicide? I mean, come on. She literally called and was like, hey, just making sure we're good to go for tomorrow morning. I need my roots touched up. And again, all of her friends said that she was larger than life, happier than ever, finally doing something for herself. She was on the upswing, despite what the Netflix documentary, oh, she was going downhill. Fuck off. She literally was just going about her life as she normally would. And so the friend that I mentioned earlier, who she called to bum some sleeping pills off of, her name is Janine Carmen. And she was never asked to testify. She was never asked to give a statement. But she has come out several times and said, quote, I would bet my life on the fact that she did not take an overdose. She was murdered, period, end quote. So another interesting little factoid here is that Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe were getting busy and even, you know, as late as 1985, it still would have been a career killer because ABC News 2020 produced an extremely well-researched segment for the show that was canceled at the last minute by an ABC executive closely linked to Ethel Kennedy motherfucker but research from the segment still exists and mrs mary fuck her housekeeper which is famously quoted in the netflix documented um even though her story never added up she was never asked to give a statement either and she fucked off to europe right after Marilyn died. I don't know if they paid her to go or if she voluntarily went because her story was sloppy and people did not want her easily accessible to go and ask questions to. So she fucked off to Europe right after Marilyn's death and she was caught on a hot mic one time after an interview like 20 years after Marilyn died and she thought the recording had stopped and she said I can't believe after all this time I still have to cover this up <laughs> I mean are you serious so by 1962 in addition to most industry people in Hollywood most politicians in Washington also knew JFK's affair with Marilyn and he was feeling kind of pressured to go ahead and break it off because the gap between his private life and his public life was starting to slowly close and people were like, hey, I can't believe you. Like, you're the president of the United States and this is getting real fucking obvious what you're doing. So, Marilyn had already planned to sing happy birthday to President Kennedy at his gala event in Madison Square Garden and the Kennedys advised her not to attend, and Marilyn Studio sent her attorney a two-page legal threat of dismissal for contract violation if she went to the party. 
And so after that was issued, Marilyn actually went and asked them like, hey, can you help me with this? Because they're saying I can't come to the party, not knowing it was the Kennedys themselves that issued it. And they were like, oh, hell no, girl, you can't come to this party. But like a badass, Marilyn went anyway. I swear she's a badass. So, in honor of his 45th birthday, 15,000 friends, colleagues, and contributors, including reporters from around the world, came and celebrated him on May 19th, 1962. And Marilyn, like the little scamp that she is, in a playful way, she's a scampy. She was trying to get the attention of President Kennedy, and she was like, oh, nah, you think y'all are just going to uninvite me to the party? I'm the life of the party. So she shows up in this form-fitting see-through gown, and it was actually like a sheer slip, and it was so tight against her naked body that she literally had to be sewed into the dress. And it was sequin studded and composed of 2,500 luminous rhinestones. And I read a quote that was from UN Ambassador Adelaide Stevenson, who said, quote, I don't think I had ever seen anyone so beautiful as Marilyn Monroe that night. She was wearing skin and beads, and I didn't see the beads, end quote. So this dress has recently been worn again by Kim K. And just to give you an example of the price of this dress, it was sold at an auction at Christie's in New York in 1999 for $1,260,000. So if you multiply that by 2022 prices, she would have at least had to pay a fraction of that to get to wear the dress. Maybe she paid over a mil just to wear that dress. But it is a bold move because the last person who wore that dress ended up dying three months later. So I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that I probably wouldn't wear the death gown that Marilyn Monroe wore that literally sealed her death because this birthday party was really the nail in the coffin for her because it was getting a little too public about her relationship with the Kennedys. So I watched the video and she kind of like sashayed onto the stage and she had this big white mink thing all covering her up. And so you were like, ooh, she's got like a white mink dress on. But then she steps up to the podium and she kind of sweeps the furs from her shoulders and like the whole crowd just gasps. And then they they think she's naked and then they're like, oh, wait, oh, thank God, she's she's got a gown on. A gown, however skin tight and flesh toned it was, she she had one on. And there was a guy, his name is Hugh Sidey. And he 
puts it, oh, he was the author of Time Magazine, and he said, quote, when she came down in that flesh-colored dress without any underwear on, you could just smell the lust, end quote. And so Marilyn ends up singing a slowed down, super sexed up version of Happy Birthday to President Kennedy. And, you know, I did look to see, like, if there was any video of, like, Jackie Kennedy's face. But it turns out that she wasn't there because the moment she heard Marilyn would be singing at the birthday party, she freaking canceled her plans and left town. That's how mad she was. So after Marilyn sings happy birthday to the president, John F. Kennedy kind of has to clean up the whole mess. So he says, quote, I can now retire from politics after having had happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. End quote. He might have been a scumbag, but he was really charming and fast on his feet. You gotta give him that. So, White House control over the press was fully in force during this event because following the event at 2.30 a.m., Secret Service agents knocked on the hotel door of White House reporter Miriam Smith and she says, quote, they wanted to make sure I didn't write about Marilyn and Bobby, end quote, because there was a ton of pictures of them dancing together and holding each other. And they were super embarrassed of this. But after the party, President Kennedy broke off the affair and Marilyn never freaking saw him again. Since it was more for political purposes than personal reasons, it's not hard to see how things got heated real fucking fast. So JFK cuts off all contact with Marilyn. Her phone calls are no longer accepted at the White House switchboard. And the private number that the president had given her to contact him was disconnected. So you remember that little piece of paper with a White House phone number scribbled on it that was found in her bed? Hmm. Guess we know what that phone number was. So actually, J. Edgar Hoover stepped in at one point and told President Kennedy that he was being very vulnerable to blackmail because FBI surveillance had confirmed his sexual escapades. And some of these women were Marilyn Monroe, Judy Campbell, Ellen Rumstitch, and Mary Pichot Meyer. And after Hoover pointed this out, that this was all potential for blackmail, Ellen Romstitch was deported when she was suspected of being an East German spy. And JFK halted his affair with Judy Campbell after being warned by Hoover that he was aware of her close ties to Sam Giancana, the Chicago Mafia chieftain. And here we go again with Sam Giancana. All right. So I just want to cover some possible scenarios because no other show on Netflix is going to give you this type of information. The first possible scenario is that it was the Kennedys. And I've read some books that have pointed to the possibility that the Kennedys had Marilyn killed because she was getting too public about her affair with the president. But 
I typically dismiss this fact due to JFK and his brother. You know, they had their affairs and shit and they were real messy and pretty fucking sloppy about it. But one thing has been established. Neither one of them went around killing their fucking girlfriends. Their interest in Marilyn was really pronounced. But it just was on a different playing field than murder. And Robert Kennedy, in particular, seemed like he was genuinely concerned about Marilyn's well-being. And, you know, murder is a bit of a stretch in that particular case. Even though there is substantial evidence that Robert Kennedy was in town and that he got out of town very quickly after her death, I feel like that was more so he wouldn't be, it wouldn't appear that he was connected to her death in any way, but I've done enough research where I really don't think that's the case. He did come over and yell at her. They did have a fight, but then after he found out she was dead, he got the fuck out of town because he already knew people saw him over there that day and he didn't want to be connected with whatever happened to her who really killed her, blaming it on him. And that's my theory. The next scenario is that the CIA did it. And that can probably be eliminated from the most serious discussions because some have proposed that the CIA killed her to avenge the Kennedys for what some agency people perceived as their betrayal of the intelligence community at the Bay of Pigs fiasco in Cuba. But the biggest problem with the CIA did it theory is that if the CIA wanted to implicate the Kennedys in murder, why would they make it look like a suicide? So then we have our last scenario. The mob. The Chicago outfit reportedly sent Tony the Ant Spilantro and Frank the German Schweiss to kill Marilyn chloroforming her and then giving her a lethal nimbutal enema and to make it look like an overdose. Other accounts from mob insiders propose that it was a different team of hitmen, but they are still consistent that they were sent by Chicago. And it's also very interesting that chloral hydrate, which is found in Marilyn's body at a level of over 17 capsules worth, is related to chloroform, hence the nickname Knockout Drops. And it's no secret about the war that was going on between Robert Kennedy's Justice Department and mafiosos like Sam Giancana and Carlos Marcello, who felt like they had been completely double-crossed by the Kennedys. What better way to cause the total career collapse of Robert Kennedy than to have it go public that his heartbroken extramarital lover had felt so rejected by him that she decided to end it all. And the evidence is right there at her freaking death scene because she has letters and notes and her diary. That's why there is such a long gap between her death and it being reported. 
It had to take time to clean up the crime scene and protect Attorney General and the President of the United States from being blackmailed by a bunch of mafiosos. So it makes sense. If mobsters had hoped to use the Monroe connection to destroy Robert Kennedy, they were thwarted by the successful cover-up. This was worked largely by Edgar Hoover. By grabbing the telephone records on their behalf, he made the Kennedys more beholden to him than ever. And... The hypnotic drug chloral hydrate had been used in murders by the mob to the extent that it was the mafia's pharmaceutical murder weapon of choice. And in the years previous to Marilyn's murder, it was reportedly used in a number of mafia murders. The mob was trying to get at the Kennedys any way that they could, and they tried a lot of ways. First, through Sinatra's friendship with them. They also tried through sexual blackmail by wiretaps and conversations catching JFK with other women and who knows what else, but setting up Marilyn via blackmail and or killing her to implicate a Kennedy were exactly the type of things they were looking for. And Marilyn's house wasn't bugged for no reason. So this notion that Marilyn was going to spill the beans on her affairs with the Kennedy brothers or the plans to kill Castro doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Or the claim that she was afraid of what the Kennedys might do to her. Because quite contrary to popular belief, her dumb blonde screen image is totally a persona because Marilyn was nobody's fucking fool. She worked so fucking hard to construct a career that had taken her all the way to the top of the ladder. So why would she freaking jeopardize that? She had an important career to protect, a career that she'd planned and strategically maneuvered to achieve. I'll tell you one thing, she definitely wouldn't have risked that over a jilted love affair. And she even said that was the reason her marriage to Joe DiMaggio could never have worked. So revealing a security secret or an affair with the president, especially in the context of the 1960s, would have sent her entire career crashing down faster than you can say holy fuck balls or in this case enema bulb so this rumor that she was going public about her affairs it doesn't even add up now to sum up in conclusion what we've learned so far the mob felt like they had some help in Washington because they literally delivered Illinois and West Virginia to JFK in the election. So they thought when JFK got into office that they would have some help from him because they had helped him. 
But what ended up happening is that they turned on them and Robert Kennedy's Justice Department and mafiosos were battling it out. And they they felt completely double-crossed by the Kennedys because they weren't giving them the quote-unquote help that they thought that they would. So they tried several angles like Frank Sinatra and, you know, the tapes of JFK with other women and stuff. And they tried to use that as blackmail against the Kennedys and it did not work. So they knew that Robert had paid a visit to Maryland that morning and that he was in town and that several witnesses saw him at her house. So they used the Maryland connection to try to make it look like Robert was responsible for Marilyn Monroe. And if you remember, in the Netflix documentary, they also tried to make it look like it was Robert Kennedy. And they were like, well, where was Robert that weekend? He was there and people saw him there, but he got out of town after he found out that they murdered Marilyn. Because he knew that they would try to blame it on him. And that was the point. The point was that they were going to make it look like a suicide. Like he had done something so terrible to Marilyn that she killed herself. But Marilyn, you know, in the documentary, it was like she was always called a piece of meat and a whore and was passed around. Yeah. Shit like that happens. I mean... She had pretty tough skin. I mean, she held her own. And she wasn't going to let some little silly shit like that destroy her whole career. So, no. But what ended up happening is the mob went in, gave her the enema, held her down, gave her the enema. She died. And then Robert found out about it or somebody found out about it. And J. Edgar Hoover sent the CIA in to go clean everything up and get all of the notebooks and the personal papers and the, the phone number with JFK's number on it and get all that stuff and get it out of the house so that they couldn't make the connection between Marilyn and the Kennedys. So that would account for the missing six hours. Not that the mob did it. The mob killed her and then J. Edgar Hoover sent the CIA in to clean everything up before the police got there because he knew if he was the one who orchestrated the cleanup on behalf of the Kennedys, they would be more beholden to him than ever. So there we have it. The whole story of why, who, all the facts, everything, all summed up in conclusion. What do you think? Do you think Marilyn Monroe killed herself? Or do you think she was a victim of murder? And very rightfully so, I think Sergeant Clemens should get the last word. And when you got to the house, who let you in? Mrs. Murray, the housekeeper became very concerned and called Dr. Greenson, who lived just a few minutes away. And what, if anything, did you ask Dr. Greenson? I asked, uh, since this all occurred shortly after midnight, and uh, the call came to me at 4.25 a.m., I asked why it took four hours to call the police. What was the response, if any, from Dr. Greenson? 
Well, Dr. Greenson finally spoke up and he said they had to get permission from the publicity department of the studio before they could notify anybody. Do you have any theory as to what happened in this instance? Yes, I do. And what is that? Marilyn Monroe was murdered. Mrs. Murray now says she can't remember why she didn't call Dr. Greenson until 3.30. That I don't know. I'll have to admit, I don't know. Jack Clemens has joined Bob Slater tonight as our guest. Mr. Clemens, welcome. Thank you. about them made you think that Marilyn's housekeeper and her psychiatrist were lying to you? Well, the story that uh, they discovered the situation around midnight and they waited over four hours to call the police, that didn't make any sense at all. And uh, I thought at that time that this would later be explained in the official report. So I didn't press the matter at that time. All right, it's, it's before dawn and you arrive to investigate a death and the washing machine is going. I mean, isn't that suspicious? Yes, it is. Uh, however, as I, as I related, uh, the entire house was very neat, the part I saw of it. Everything had been picked up, nothing out of place. And I attributed this, all of this, and also the laundry equipment uh, being uh, in operation to the fact that I, as I had thought at that time, that these people were very much concerned with public appearances because 50 or 100 people were going to come in and out of this house. She was very prominent and a lot of publicity was going to be generated. So from, from a public relations point of view. That's right, yeah. What do you make of it now? Well, after uh, I got into an unofficial investigation and was in it for a while, uh, it became apparent to me that what was actually happening was evidence was being destroyed. Mr. Slater, what did you see at the house that raised your antenna? Well, the thing that struck me as being curious was the fact that the window uh, Dr. Greenson allegedly broke to gain access to Marilyn's bedroom. The majority of the glass was lying on the outside on the ground rather than, rather than on the inside. There was no uh, evidence of a person dying in this fashion. There was no uh, vomit or regurgitation in the room, none in the bathroom. Uh, there was not a glass of water sitting by the bed. Sergeant Clemens tried to reopen the investigation. It was obvious from the reaction of everybody that I talked to and that other people talked to that the fix was in. The matter was simply a closed book in their minds. They did not want to hear any facts that did not support the conclusion that had already been announced to the press. And his opinion of the real cause of death? I believe Marilyn Monroe was murdered. 